Hi, everyone. Welcome to this uh, latest podcast in our CRISPR podcast mini-series from the CRISPR Journal, sponsored by Horizon. I'm Kevin Davis, the uh, executive editor of the CRISPR Journal, and I'm joined today by Kieran Lee, a senior postdoc and a newly minted Marie Curie fellow at APC Microbiome Island at University College Cork in Ireland. Hi, Kieran. Hi, how's it going? Going well, thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. We're going to talk primarily about uh, CRISPR and uh, DNA repair, HDR, and how to favor HDR over uh, other types of recombination to uh, get the desired outcomes that uh, most people are looking for in their CRISPR genome editing work. Before we get into the nitty gritty of that, Kieran, uh, why not, for folks who don't know you, uh, just give us a quick background of your uh, your journey uh, from Ireland to the US and back again. Sure. So I guess it starts doing a PhD uh, in UCC in Cork with Dr. Patrick Harrison, working on developing zinc finger nucleases, so the original uh, gene editing tools to uh, fix mutations uh, that cause cystic fibrosis. Uh, and following that, I also did a postdoc there working on another disease called cystinosis, developing again zinc finger nucleases and tal effector nucleases. From there, I went to Georgia Tech to join the lab of Professor Gang Bao, developing tailings in CRISPR for uh, sickle cell anemia. And then when he moved to Texas, uh, I went along and we established a gene editing core at Rice University. And we also uh, worked on developing ways to improve HDR and hematopoietic stem cells for treating sickle cell disease. And then just recently, I returned back to Ireland and joined the APC to study uh, gut inflammation and how our our immune systems interact with the microbes in our gut. Great. Well, we'll we'll come to that in a few minutes uh, and hear about how CRISPR is playing a role in your current research. But you mentioned zinc finger nucleases. So what was the impetus to change from ZFNs to CRISPR-Cas9? The main reason was efficiency. So I think in my PhD, I got one pair of zinc finger nucleases to work over the course of four years, a lot of design and failure. Whereas with CRISPR, anyone who's used it knows you design a guide RNA and nine times out of 10, it's going to give you a high level of cutting when you put it in cells. Yeah. Um, and we did have an intermediate step in tailings, which were sort of in the middle, uh, slightly easier to design, but it didn't always work. So it also had a, an intermediate failure rate. But after using CRISPR, just haven't looked back. No going back, huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, So I'm sure most listeners are all too familiar with the distinction between HDR and NHEJ. For the folks who are perhaps new to CRISPR and people are coming into this field and using this technology uh, all the time, could you kind of just give us sort of some elementary, how do you think about these different repair pathways? What are the chief differences and why are those differences important? Yeah, so there are two main pathways by which cells can repair a DNA break that's been generated by CRISPR. The sort of default uh, pathway for DNA repair in this instance would be non-homologous end joining or NHEJ. And essentially, that's where the cells try to stick those two ends of DNA back together as quickly as they can, in some cases without any disregard for preserving the original sequence. So what you can get is introduction of small insertions or deletions. So you end up with a mutation occurring at that cut site. HDR is based on the homologous recombination pathway. Uh, and essentially what you're doing here is using a repair template that you introduce into the cells to make a specific DNA-based change or to insert a specific sequence of DNA into the cut site. So this is a more targeted approach to generate an outcome that's desired, whereas NHEJ can give you a completely random outcome. But if your goal is to disrupt the gene, then it is the preferred outcome that you've achieved. 
So am I right in thinking that then most in most cell types or perhaps in, in most stages of the cell cycle, you've got this choice, this sort of pendulum or this uh, seesaw, and you're trying to favor perhaps one over the other? If you're trying to favor HDR, for sure. If your goal is just to do NHEJ, which is a lot of what I'm doing right now, you just deliver your CRISPR reagents, you get your break, the cells will generate a mutation through NHEJ. If your goal is to push that towards a specific change through HDR, then you have to introduce a repair template. Consider that cells generally only undergo this HDR process during kind of actively cycling and go through the G2S phase. So achieving HDR in a thermally differentiated cell would be extremely difficult uh, and highly unlikely without somehow manipulating those cells. So if we're thinking about this, as you have done in your recent work in a therapeutic setting, uh, where we're trying to replace or engineer a, a DNA mutation in a particular genetic disease, then we want to favor HDR over NHEJ in most cases anyway. Yeah, for sure. You've nicely described the two main classes of repair systems. Are there other classes of DNA repair in the cell that we need to consider and take into account? There's a, a lot of different flavors of NHEJ when you go down the rabbit hole. There's the classical NHEJ, there's an alternative NHEJ pathway. People have sort of tried to piggyback on short resections of the DNA bases and introduce short homology stretches to try and jump things into the genome through base pairing. And then people have also tried to insert large fragments in the absence of homology in a process called homology-independent targeted integration, whereby you can insert a DNA into the genome after Cas9 has induced a double strand of break just by ligation. So hmm. the way to insert DNA of interest into a terminally differentiated cell, such as a neuron, although the efficiency is going to be quite low. Okay. Well, let's go back. Uh, you've spent the last few years, I know, working in primary stem cells. This is work you've been doing with Gang Bao in Texas and collaborating uh, with Matthew Porteous's group, among others, at Stanford. Perhaps you could just review for us, how was HDR relevant and uh, important in that research described with the main objective of what you were trying to do? Yeah, so we're trying to correct the mutation that causes sickle cell anemia. This is sort of considered the low-hanging fruit for correcting a genetic disease because all patients harbor the exact same single base mutation. So it's the smallest mutation you can have, and every single patient has it, which from a CRISPR point of view is nice because you only have to design one guide RNA to go after one mutation that will then work for the entire patient population if you can get it to work. Uh, so we were working with hematopoietic stem cells from sickle cell patients and trying to increase HDR in these cells at the sickle cell locus. And we ran into some problems very early on moving from cell lines to stem cells because initially we were doing all our screening and testing and cell lines using plasma DNA to deliver our CRISPR reagents. And once we just switched over to stem cells, we effectively just killed them all by doing this. And this woman realized that we couldn't use plasma DNA in these cells because they have an innate immune response where they recognize this DNA as being foreign. And they also have a way to recognize DNA in the cytoplasm where it should not be. It should all be in the nucleus. So this generates sort of a type 1 interferon immune response. The cells then undergo apoptosis. We don't have cells that at the end then we can give back to patients. So we eventually switched to using a purified recombinant Cas9 protein and short synthetic guide RNAs as uh, CRISPR RNPs or ribonucleic protein complexes. So this overcame that initial problem of toxicity. Um, we also had the added benefit that when we use RNPs, we have shortened the time of expression in the cells. So this has the added benefit of reducing off-target effects as well. 
So we could then, with this setup, nicely generate high levels of NHEJ, up to 90% of all alleles in the population. So then the next step was to introduce a donor repair template and see if we could induce HDR in these cells. Our lab took a different approach to Mapoidius's lab, where we used short single-stranded DNA oligonucleotides of about 100 to 150 bases as a repair template. So we did a lot of optimization on what sort of oligo would work best, whether it was complementary to the guide RNA sequence or it was the opposite. It was the exact on the strand that's similar to the guide RNA sequence. So we saw a difference there where the complementary sequence worked better for HDR. And also we tested whether or not this oligo will be centered on the cut side or offset to either the five or three prime end. And in our hands, at least the centered oligo worked best. I know there's reports in literature that offset oligos can increase HDR, but in, in our experience, centered oligos worked best. Okay. So from Matt's work, they used an AAV vector to deliver the repair template. And, and they also see quite high levels of HDR as well. Yeah. And again, I guess you're delivering a large piece of DNA, but you're going in in a stealth mode to avoid that initial immune response because the DNA is packaged in the vector of the virus until it reaches the nucleus. And I think with the oligo, it's that it's short enough to not initiate that response. Do you still see NHEJ in these circumstances, or are you able to quash that down completely? We're not able to at all. So using the short oligos, we still have more NHEJ than we do HDR. Ah, okay. And in the context of sickle cell, this is potentially a problem. Yeah. Because if you have a cell that's NHEJ in both alleles, it would be null for beta globin. And yeah. this would induce a beta thalassemia phenotype. So you'd be generating a different disease in those cells. It's trading one disease for another, yeah. Right. Yeah. So how can you, uh, w what are the strategies going forward then to try to, uh, to tip the scales even further? People have tried using small molecules to arrest the cell cycle at different stages. And this works well in cell lines that are actively dividing all the time. With long-term uh, hematopoietic stem cells, they have a slower cycling time. So people have actually taken the approach of using different compounds in the media to actually induce these cells to cycle for maybe two or three days. So they can be more receptive for HDR. And then following CRISPR treatment after a certain period of time to then withdraw those reagents so the cells go back into a quiescent state. So, uh, but even using these techniques, you still will get excess NGJ to HDR using a short oligo for repair. I, I can't speak too much about experience using AAV vectors because I haven't done that myself. Yeah, yeah. So um, some of this work is already on the verge of or moving into the clinic. So is this NHEJ something that clinicians are going to figure out a way to live with? You're not suggesting there's a route to potentially eradicating it completely. Well, I guess you can't say never. Yeah. But the other alternative is to use NHEJ to your advantage. And this is what they've done with the current CRISPR trials for sickle cell anemia and beta thalassemia. A lot of research has shown that some of these patients actually have very mild, if no disease symptoms, even though they have mutations which should cause the disease. And what they've noticed in these individuals is they actually express a high level of fetal hemoglobin protein, which can carry oxygen around the body and take the place of the mutant adult form of hemoglobin. And a lot of work has been done by Stu Orkin to show that you can hit different transcription factors and modify or modulate which globin chain is expressed in cells, whether it's the adult or the fetal form. And because yeah. the fetal form in these people is not mutated, once you express it, it can actually take over from the mutant adult form. Right. So these ongoing trials use CRISPR to do NHEJ to essentially inactivate this transcription factor to reactivate fetal hemoglobin expression. Yeah. 
Yeah. You mentioned a minute ago uh, the use of chemicals potentially to swing the balance in favor of HDR. Before we leave that topic, what sort of chemicals, What? how are they acting? And are there any other tricks up your sleeve to, again, favor HDR over HEJ? Yeah, a lot of the compounds actually have generic names because they've never been licensed. Could be something like GSK14758 or something like that. People have done the reverse, would have tried to suppress NHEJ. Okay. Um, you can do that by knocking down proteins associated with NHEJ by siRNA, inhibit those proteins. But the problem is our genomes are damaged every time our cells divide. Right. And one of the quickest ways for our cells to just take care of that and repair it so that the replication doesn't stall and the cell right. dies is to use NHEJ. Right. So if we were to block NHEJ completely, we'd actually start introducing mutations randomly throughout the genome yeah. in our cells. So even though I think academically you could do it, I don't think it would be a wise thing. <laughs> yeah. And is this one of the reasons that base editing has become so popular? Because you're, you're not necessarily, by not completely cleaving the double helix, you're not invoking these repair pathways. I think so, yes. You're not inducing NHEJ yeah. at a very high level. You might get below 1%. Yeah. Just uh, that NIC being converted to a double strand of break every so often. Yeah. But it's a far cleaner system right. in terms of just modifying a particular targeted base. Although, obviously, it's a newer technology. There's still some things that need to be ironed out. The initial first or second class base editors had a huge amount of guide RNA independent mutations throughout the genome from the deaminases, just looking at a DNA base and changing it in a non-specific manner. But just recently, they've brought out next generation base editors. But you still then have a problem that they're designed to target a base in a certain window from the PAM site. Right. So you are going to be somewhat constrained to which bases in the genome you can target. Right. Right. But again, there's other newer versions of Cas9, which have this less of a constraint in the PAM sites you can recognize. Yep. So you are going to introduce that flexibility again. But currently, you can only mutate a C to a T or an A to a G. Yeah, right. You're back in Ireland now. When did you move back? And what's the main thrust of your current research with your um, Marie Curie Fellowship? Congratulations. Oh, thank you. So I moved back January 2019, so just over a year and a bit ago. Okay. And I've been working in, in gut inflammation and in host microbe dialogue. So looking at the interaction between the microbes in our gut and the immune system. Yeah. It's sort of a big interface into how we communicate with these bugs. So I was interested in how we have all of these bacteria in our bodies. They're constantly in contact with the lining of our gut almost. Yeah. The system is sampling this bacteria on a daily basis. Yet we don't get massive reactions or inflammations most of the time. So we have this level of tolerance, which is occurring. Yeah. And then so what we think is that some of the commensal bacteria that normally reside in our guts actually have beneficial properties. And some of this is mediated through the interaction of our microbiome with our immune system. So what I'll be doing in my Marie Curie Fellowship is to use CRISPR libraries to sort of mine our immune system and mine our microbes to identify the pathways and factors that are underlying this communication and try to identify targets for therapies going forward that could be used for immunomodulatory therapies, whether it be an adjunct to immune checkpoint blockade for cancer or a novel therapeutic target for inflammatory bowel disease. And what role is CRISPR going to play in this next phase? Uh, it'll be used to engineer cells. So we'll be targeting different pathways to see if we can modulate the function of immune cells right. by targeting specific genes. Looking at it also from the, the role of the bacteria, doing a whole genome knockout screen in bacteria to identify what pathways in the bacteria are important for its beneficial function for us. 
Great. Um, we're talking about your ongoing research, although for you and presumably everybody, it's been pretty tough to do any research over the last few months under these uh, pandemic conditions. Have you been able to get back into the lab? Yeah, so we went on shutdown about two months ago, and just last week we reopened on a very limited trial basis and also with obviously social distancing and other restrictions in place to ensure the safety of staff in about a week. And obviously there's a lot of challenges associated with going back to work under these conditions, um, as well as maintaining different shifts for different people. So it also means we have limited time in the lab. So a lot of teamwork and I'll do this for you in the morning if you do that for me in the afternoon sort of work. So it's definitely brought out more collaborative side of things and trying to work yeah. with in a more creative ways. Right. Someone comes around yelling last call, do they? <laughs> last experiment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we haven't had to do that yet, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> last call. Get down the pub. Anyway, Kieran, it's been great chatting with you. Nice to meet you and best of luck. Hopefully conditions will loosen up and it's a fascinating new area of research. But we really appreciate your expertise in helping us understand the pros and cons of favoring one repair pathway over another. Very helpful indeed. Thanks so much. Thank you. That was Kieran Lee, senior postdoc and a Marie Curie fellow. I think we plugged them enough at APC Microbiome Island at University College Cork. It's been a pleasure having him on. And thanks to Horizon for making this podcast series possible. And we look forward to you joining us for another podcast in the very near future. I'm Kevin Davis for The Christopher Journal. Thanks for joining us and goodbye.